Well, today we conclude our study through our short little jaunt, if you will, uh, through the topic of new creation, a topic that we can and one day will spend all eternity considering. But today we bring that to an end and we have, we have stretched out, if you will, a contemplation on the resurrection. What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? Um, and we've been thinking about that through the lens of our inheritance in Christ. And today we come to that last look at it, and so we jump to the end, to that passage at the end of the end, the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and really flowing over into that entire uh, uh, second to last chapter, and it flows even into chapter 22, this grand and glorious vision of what awaits us in the end. And as we've already said, that which has already begun in Christ, this is not merely a future glance. It's the reality in which we live now. And that's worth contemplating for us who are still weary travelers in the wilderness on our way to the promised land to remember that this is a reality for us even now here in Christ. So as we come to this text, and Mark read the text for us, I guess I just want us to look down through the text and to consider the realities of this new creation as they're given to us in John's great vision. Now, you'll remember that we're at the end of Revelation, and as I've said to you before, though I, I this is controversial in the sense that within the big scope of Christianity, people have all different takes on what's happening in the book of Revelation and what are we reading about, but my take on the book of Revelation is that it is a divine uh, uh, revealing, unveiling, that's what the word apocalypse means, an unveiling. Uh, it's, it's God pulling back the veil for John so that all the churches, the seven churches, and in, in, in the scripture, seven is a number of completion and fullness. And while it's written to seven particular churches, it's seven churches, and hence it's to all the churches that Jesus unveils for John the reality that we are living in and that we are going to have to minister in on this side of the cross and resurrection. That's what Revelation is, I believe. It's a divine unveiling of the age in which now the church must live and, and minister. It, it tells you the story or it gives you a glimpse of the context in which the church must live. And, there, and therefore, I believe the book of Revelation is not a book about the end times as we often think of them, but the end times the way the Bible talks about it. For the Bible, the end times are the time between the first and second coming of Christ, that we are in the end times in that sense. And as such, the book of Revelation is unveiling what that time is. Hey, church, they're on the, they're on the front end of it. Here's what you can expect. And it's a hard expectation. If, if we were to go back through Revelation, you would remember that you should expect suffering. You know, it's, it's the Lord who empowers and, and actually breaks the seals that, that unfold the scroll of God's purposes. And when he starts breaking the seals to unfold his purposes, what comes out? Four horsemen. And the four horsemen bring trouble. And, and they're, they're empowered to do so. They're, they're actually summoned out by the angel that the Lord appoints. 
and they, they bring economic disaster and they bring suffering and death and they bring war and conquest and they, you know, they stalk you, the pale rider. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a story of trouble. It's a story in which there's a beast that is empowered by a dragon on the shore. And these beastly powers will rise up out of the sea and make war against the church. This is not an image of some catastrophic event that's going to happen at the end of time. It's what the people in Rome had to deal with. As an empire, there was rising up out of the sea, a seven-headed beast, if you will. Uh, the city set on seven hills that was going to make war against the church. It was coming, and it did come. And they triumphed. I put that in air quotes, because that's what Revelation says, and the beast will, will dominate them. Get ready for that. That's the story church, that you are living in. And this beast doesn't do it of himself. He's empowered by the dragon on the seashore that's, in, that's equipping him. It's Satan. This is, this is not Rome that's against you. This is Satan that is against you by way of the beast that rises out of the sea and the harlot that rides on her back, this beautiful culture that woos you and seeks to gain loyalty from you, to come over to her side and join the beast, either because of the threats of its power or the beauty of its culture. That's what Revelation is about. And as such, it gives us a, a, an archetype for what the church is going to have to deal with through all the ages. Rome is sort of the archetypical beast, and its culture the archetypical harlot. Oh my goodness, we've seen it over and over and over and over again, ages unto ages here. And the church has had to wrestle with this again and again and again. In the middle of Revelation there in chapter 11, we're told that the church will be beaten by the, by the beast. I mean, it gets really hard. I just was going through this with my seniors. We, we did a little course on Revelation and I mean, even so much that they will be trampled, they'll be, you know, they'll be crushed. I mean, it's, it's very, very strong language. And so I tell you this because it's important that when we get to the sweet time, you know, I and mean, you get to Revelation 21, if you're tracking with the book, it's like huzzah. You know, it's just, you know, celebration. But to get the celebration, you got to feel the pain. To, to understand the joy of the celebration, you've got to feel the struggle of what the saints have been called to do. And brothers and sisters, you and I live in that time. We, we live in a time in which we are called to endure. Several times throughout the book of Revelation, I'll say, this calls for endurance among the saints. Don't grow weary. Don't you end up getting the beast number on your forehead. You want the lamb's name on your head, right? But Revelation makes such a beautifully stark contrast for us. It's either the beast or the lamb. There is no in-between. There's no, well, you're just a really nice person, but you haven't chosen sides. You know, you haven't settled on your truth. You know, no, no. You either have the mark of the beast or you have the name of the lamb. It is one or the other. And therefore, you will either end up in the lake of fire or in new creation. The stories are stark. The, the, the antagonist and the protagonist starkly different. The people different. The city Zion and, and Babylon. These two great women in the book, the bride and the harlot. 
the beast and the lamb, the dragon and the father. So stark. And you are with one or the other. And by the time we get to the end, the end itself is stark. There is a lake of fire and there is a new creation. And there's no kind of mild, nice place in between for people who are nice and they didn't support that beast, you know, but they didn't, they couldn't commit to the lamb either. And so they end up in some nice, just sort of neutral place. No, it's not that way. And so all of these things now come to this climactic end. And if you are tracking with it by the time you got here and, and John says, and I saw a new heavens and new earth and the old had passed away. It is just beautiful, pure relief. So that's where we come to today. And we've been looking at different passages, but now we come to that final revelation of it. So let's think about it. What does John see here in this revelation? And he sees a few things that I want us to talk about. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So what we have here is that vision of creation having been judged and cleansed and purified, if you will, think about, think about creation in the, in just as, as like a little microcosm in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ ends up in glory, but how? Through death and resurrection. And so shall it be with the new heavens and the new earth, if you will. The whole earth, the heavens, the created world, because of sin entering into it, needs to be cleansed. But that cleansing comes through a death, if you will. A death and a resurrection. And when the resurrection comes, it's not as if the old thing is crumpled up and thrown away and there's a new thing. That's not what happened with Jesus' body. Jesus' body went into the grave and it came out transcendent. And that body, we know it's that body because he says, here, here are the wounds on my hands and, and my side. Put your hand in there if you want. He ate with his disciples. It's that body, but now made glorious and transcendent. And so John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first had passed away. That old, that temporal, that mortal had flown away and there was no more sea. Now, if you are tracking with John in Revelation, that statement would be one of great relief to us who like going to the ocean we go, oh no, you know, there's no, what do you mean there's no sea? You know, but if you were tracking with John, you'd be, hooray, you know, because the sea is that place out of which the beast with seven heads and ten horns came. The sea in the Bible represents the, the fomenting wrath of the nations, the, the chaotic stirring of the nations against the Lord and against his anointed. When the sea is mentioned, that's why even, even coming out of Egypt, the Red Sea is split open. And Israel's escape is not only just the escape from Egypt, it's the escape from the sea. He's, and then the sea comes back and crushes the Egyptians. The sea, think even in the, in the story of Noah. In the story of Noah, right, this flood and this sea represents a symbol of judgment. The sea in the Bible is usually not a good thing. Jesus calms the sea. He's out of the Sea of Galilee and the sea is raging. The disciples think they're going to die. He calms the sea. 
The disciples are out at the sea on a storm. Jesus comes walking on the stormy sea, demonstrating his authority over it. The sea, maybe, maybe the ocean will be there in heaven. I don't know. You know, he doesn't give us a picture. Even this is not a picture of heaven. This is a vision. And visions, as I've told you when we studied through Revelation, visions are not pictures. Pictures tell you what is. Visions tell you what things mean. And this is telling you the meaning of heaven. So when it says there's no sea, you, th you don't think to yourself, well, wait, there'll be no ocean? It tells you there will be no more chaos. Right? There will be, there will be no more raging of the nations. Think of that Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and His anointed? That's the sea. The beast comes up out of the sea. But in new creation, there will be no more of that. Now the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. But no more raging of the nations. So we see a new creation and that new creation is free. It is liberated from the noise, the chaotic cacophony of rebellion against God. Just think, just you can hear it right now. Even being in here is a quiet place. Because the minute you walk out of these doors, you walk back into the noise of rebellion against God. And, and you, you know what it becomes for you? It's like, you know, the ancients, the medievals used to talk about the music of the spheres, that, that the heavens are in tune and the heavens make music, that their movements are musical and they're in rhythm and there's a music to the heavens. But they said, we're so familiar with it, we can't hear it anymore. And it's the same true with the raging of the nations. You almost can't hear it. You're so used to it. You've lived in Babylon so long that you almost, you learn how to kind of block out that cacophony of rebellion against God. But just listen when you go out. And that's the beauty of coming to church is we can come here and we can have the quiet and worship God and hear his praises. So that's what John sees when he sees new creation. Imagine a place where everywhere you go, it's filled with praise. It is filled with life. It is filled with joy. Imagine that. That is what is your inheritance. Then verse 2, I, I, John, saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what does John see? He sees the bride. Now remember, I told you in Revelation, you got these two women. You got the bride and you got the harlot. The harlot is the anti. Everything's you know you got you've got the Christ and then you get the Antichrist. You got the Lamb and the anti-Lamb is the beast. You get the Father and you get the anti-Father, the dragon. And you've got the bride and the anti-bride. And the anti-bride is the harlot. It's the cultures of this world that woo you to be to find your identity in her. And if you just flip back a couple pages, you see what happens if you do that. Because the, the harlot was exposed and thrown into the lake of fire. And all who had slept with her, all who had found their identity in her, in the cultures of this age, just were in utter despair when she was exposed. And they were all ruined and undone. But we ought not to be so. We are those whose identity is not in the harlot, but our identity is in the bride. 
of Christ. Now, now note this. In this age, many times, the harlot looks so beautiful and so successful and has so much to offer. And many times in this life, the bride looks kind of rough. Her gown is spotted and wrinkled. Her hair's a mess. She can't get her act together. This is the reality of the church. Look around. It's not often that beautiful. It doesn't look like there's an immediate payoff. Like you get in with the harlot. You can have a good life right now. A lot of things will come your way if you, you know, get in bed with her. Whereas the bride, even in the book of Revelation, like she's a mess and she takes a beating. She takes a beating from the culture. I mean, she follows the lamb wherever he goes, you know, and that means right through the valley of the shadow of death. In your first glance, you're like, I'm not sure I want to be in that group. But it's very important that you read Revelation and see the two destinies. Because the harlot gets exposed and all who were in bed with her pay the price. They had their reward. I hope they enjoyed it. But those who are with the bride and followed the lamb wherever he went end up here. And you can see in that passage that's after our text in chapter 9, Come, said the angel, and I will show you the bride. And I looked, and behold, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, radiant in beauty and glory, whose foundations were jewels, whose gates were pearls, whose streets were gold, even the most basic and base things of this city, the lowliest among us, are like gold, like clear liquid glass. That's the bride. And in this age, you have to have revelation eyes to see it. Say, yes, yes, in that, in that bride with messy hair, can't get her act together, who's taking a beating. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. And John gets to see this beautiful bride. And that's what the church will be. Christ died for this woman. Christ died for this bride to make her a beautiful and radiant city of people with every little stone cobbled in and put in its proper place like jewels in a, in a beautiful wall. That will be there. And you want to be part of that. Then verse 3, Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Here, as I said to you earlier, this is the heavenliness of heaven. Here we reach the glory of the glorious place, namely that Emmanuel, God is with us here. You know what makes heaven so great? It's not that there's no more tears, no more diagnoses of cancer, no more death. That's all wonderful stuff. But what makes all of that great is that God is there. And he dwells with you. If you flip over to the end of the chapter in verse 22, but I saw no temple in it. There was no place where like the presence of God was kind of sequestered. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And they dwell with us. There's no more boundaries and borders and exiles and exclusions. And you can't go there and only he can go there. Gone. God 
dwelling in and with his people. And you might even remember in verse 16, when the city, the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven is measured, we get these measurements. And then it says, and the city, this new Jerusalem is laid out as a square, but it's more than a square, it turns out. It's actually a cube. Like we rarely measure cities by their height. We measure them by their width and by their breadth. And we say, okay, this city is so many square miles, but not so with the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem you measure in cubic miles. Its city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Now, again, this is not a photograph of the New Jerusalem. This is a vision of the New Jerusalem, which means it's not telling you, okay, guys, so if you get there and you got your Stanley tape measure and you do measure it out, you will find it's an actual cube. He's giving you the significance. Do you know what the cube means? Do you know where else there is a cube, a cubic space in the Bible? And the answer is the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was cubic. And what he's saying here is not, hey, this is a really strange city. Like, wow, you know, it's, it's 50 miles across, but it's also 50 miles high. Like, what's that even mean that a city would be so many miles high? That's not the point. The point is, do you see what he's saying about the city? Do you, saying, do you see what he's saying about the New Jerusalem? Its length and its depth and its height are the same. Let the reader understand. You are living in the Holy of Holies. You are living in the very immediate and presence of God. You don't need no temple. You are the temple. You're living in the temple now. This is the heavenliness of heaven, and it's ours. And brothers and sisters, as I said to you, this is already true of you now. I mean, this is why we have to live into it. Jesus, when he ascends, he actually says, it's better for you that I go away, for if I go away, then I will send to you a comforter, and he will come teach you all things regarding me. And he says at the Great Commission, now I'm going, you know, go into all nations, preach the word, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How is he with us? He is with us by the pouring out of his spirit, by which he doesn't just dwell with us, but he dwells in us. He dwells, so that now your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's already beginning now. You're, you're already, and that's why we're called to live out that heavenly existence even now. And so he will dwell. What does John see in this new heavens and new earth? Emmanuel. And then in verse 4, of course, the beautiful thing that we, that at least I kind of grab onto very quickly for the effects and the fruitfulness of this relationship with Emmanuel, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Don't you remember? I said that in verse 1. He's saying, the former things had passed away. The old heavens and the old earth are gone. The old heavens and old earth are a place of death. It's one big graveyard, this globe. And think about the death. That, that is buried, you know, in, in this earth. But that's wiped away. And there is no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. As I've told you, one of my favorite images in the Bible is right there, just the verse right before our text this morning in Revelation 20 and verse 14. Then death and Hades, the place of the dead, were cast into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death. The fact that John gets to see in this vision death itself, whatever that means, taken and thrown into the lake of fire uh, is just such a beautiful and awesome image. I can't wait for that day when we don't have to attend another funeral, when we don't have to hear. I was with, uh, I was in the middle of a school assembly when Andy texted me and told me that and, and mentioned that Tim Keller had died and, and um, you know, my heart just sunk, you know, and, and uh, I was in another thing when I got the text on Harry Reader, you know, and I, I've met Harry. I didn't know him, but I've, I've been in some small meetings with him and seen the impact that he's had on the PCA and, and, um, these are just men who you can't imagine dying, you know? I don't know how to, it's like my dad. When my dad died, I just can't imagine my dad dying. It's like it just doesn't compute. You know, death's a reality. You just can't imagine there being, you know, ministry in New York City without Tim Keller. I just can't even imagine it. You know, I can't imagine, you know, uh, 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 Briarwood without uh, Harry Reader. Just can't do it. And yet the Lord can. <laughs> the Lord's like, no, I have other things we're going to do. And it's time for these men to come home. But it still stinks to have to think about it. It still stinks to have to have funerals for them. But the day is coming in which that will be no more. And what a joyful thing it is for us to think about and to contemplate. Then as we approach the end, he says to him, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, Write these words. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. I love that image as well, that he will give to us to drink the, the rivers of life. That is eternal life. You know, the, 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 the quiet rivers that he will make us lay down beside are those that are living water. And we, and we will drink of them forever. The sustenance, the joy of that. And again, coming back to his dwelling with us, but there's even more said in this in verse seven. And he who overcomes, that is he who prevails through this hard book of Revelation and the hard life that you're called to live, right? Whether it's Tim Keller battling through pancreatic cancer and all the slings and arrows that he's had to deal with of trying to minister in New York, or you just trying to be faithful in your job or faithful within your community, dealing with your own diagnoses and your own troubles and your own sin struggles and in that prevailing and overcoming, not by your strength, but by the power of God relying upon him to you who overcomes, you shall inherit all things. This, this is why you ought not grow weary. You ought not grow weary because you know that the end of your race means the inheritance, not of a lot of really great things, the inheritance of all things is yours. And I will be his God, and he, that is the one who overcomes, he or she in this sense, will be my son. Even you ladies will be his son in that sense because the son is the heir. And we will be heirs of God. Like, like prodigal sons who come home to the father and then receive the abundance of the father's house. Son, all I have is yours, he said to the elder son. And it became true of the younger son as well. Heirs of all things. Co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now our text ends on a negative note. 
which is interesting. It's kind of like Psalm 1. Psalm 1 does this. You know, blessed is the man who does this, and he will be like a tree planted by the tree. It feels so great. And they say, but the wicked are not so. And you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, they will be like chaff. And so here we do have a warning. And it's like, don't you want that picture? Man, we all want that. Well, don't grow weary in the well-doing. Don't, don't cave to the beast. Don't be wooed by the harlot. Stay faithful. Follow the lamb. Be part of the bride. For the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, you just can't get more stark than this. These two ends. And this is a summons then to, for us to be those who overcome by the strength of the Lamb. Those who remain faithful unto the end and those who pray for those who are loyal to the beast or wooed by the harlot, who are, have yet to see the glory and beauty of the lamb and of his bride, to pray for them. So it's a call to greater obedience and a call to faithfulness in our prayer life. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the end. And I encourage you to rejoice in it. I encourage you to plaster it before your eyes so that when you are, you hear the wooing of the harlot, when you hear and you tremble over the threatening of the beast and the culture that, that, that hates your faith, as Jesus said they will, that when we, are, when we are tempted to take our eyes off Christ, either because of beauty or terror, we have this placarded before us and it calls us, it snaps us back in to faithfulness, for this is the end that is yours. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new heavens and the new earth. Those realities which we could not in any way by our strength secure, but which you have secured for us through the faithfulness of your Son, bearing the weight of our sins so that we might be clean and that the old might pass away, and being raised unto new life, that we through him might be made new creation. Oh, Father, anchor our hope to the vision that you gave to John and through John to us, that we might rejoice and be faithful, being able to shrug off the wooings of the cultural harlots, but also, Father, shrugging off the, the fearsome threats of the political beasts and the cultural beasts that wage war against you and your anointed. Keep us faithful until the end, we pray. And Lord, we pray for the lost. We pray for those who do not follow the Lamb. Father, make us agents of yours, right in the face of a culture that hates you, that we might proclaim the gospel faithfully and by your grace, summon your elect from every nation to be part of the bride. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.